This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. Today, Rachel Jacobs shares her innovative interdisciplinary research into social ties and the effects of collectivization on mortality in democratic Kampuchea. edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. Uh, I'm your host, Eric Jones, and with me in studio is Rachel Jacobs. Welcome to NIU. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you gave a really good presentation to us about some of your very recent research. Uh, Rachel is a PhD candidate in comparative politics and IR at uh, Wisconsin-Madison, and work varies uh, between political violence, revolution, post-conflict politics, and gave a, gave a, gave a very interesting um, new approach, I think, to uh, interdisciplinary uh, research into the, the Cambodian genocide. So uh, let's talk about it. Great. Thank you. I have some, I have some questions about, um, and it's really, it's your question, but why, so you, would you look at why do some survive the genocide and, and others not? And I guess, how did you come to that as a, as a, as a, as a research question? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I came to this as a research question actually looking at sort of the two components of the Cambodian case. And so when people think about Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge, they tend to think about really horrifying types of violence and very very devastating ways in which society was reordered, but they think about the killing fields or they think about the prison system where you had a lot of direct execution, but you also had almost equal rates by which people were dying from things like famine or exhaustion or malnutrition. Um, And so those are characteristics of a set of cases um, that we can talk about as communist mass violence. Um, where you had this transition to collective agriculture, which was a central feature of the Khmer Rouge regime. Uh, and so I got to this question by looking at, you know, the work that exists, and there's some amazing historical work um, and a lot of new information coming out from the ongoing tribunal. Um, but a lot of it is really focused on this direct violence piece. And I and, it, and it's hard not to, to interrupt yeah. the, 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 you know, the, the S21, or kind of, you know, the, the, it, it, the, there's the... The direct violence piece of it is is so um, sort of terrifying mm-hmm. and 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 acute that it's 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 uh, it, it kind of takes up all the oxygen in the room in, in in some ways. You know, the case in Cambodia is is perhaps further complicated because the you have a a Shoah Holocaust mm-hmm. uh, like kind of direct targeted uh, mass killing. Um, but you also have a sort of Soviet-style mm-hmm. uh, indirect. Um, so, so it's it's uh, is some of those kinds of the bins that mm-hmm. one puts these these massive deaths in. Is 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 that maybe part of the problem that Cambodia doesn't fit squarely in all the in all the bins? Or yeah, I, I think part of the problem certainly would be that this is a case where you had both what you would think of as more traditional um, genocide, so you had direct direct violence at targeted groups for being very particular that were, you know, limited by ethnic and religious differences, yeah. but you also had this class-based violence, and you had um, 
the indirect, the indirect piece and that question of intention. So, you know, if we're thinking about more of the Soviet style, um, these people who died from collectivization, that's an indirect question. Are you saying the state was intentionally mm-hmm. going out and trying to kill them or it was a mistake or people had bad information or byproduct of that. Yeah, it was a side effect of this economic program. Um, so I think part of why that piece I think has been less talked about is in part that it's just much harder to classify. Um, but also that there is sort of that open question of intention. Yeah, and so that 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 plays a big part of what did the um, and, and and perhaps of, of all of the comparative well, you know, the dangers of the comparative atrocities game, but of all of the, 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 it is, it is perhaps most murky in, in democratic kombucha. We, we don't know, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the red books have been reconstructed, but there's, there's not nearly the kind of, in terms of like, yeah. if you look at say the Nazi state, like we know very detailed kind of what people were thinking, uh, dec- decades before and how it was, you know, like there, there's a kind of an entire, um, um, kind of university of, of field of study about and, and the, it's looking through a glass darkly at, at so much of the and, and, uh, and so the, the approach of actually studying what the state was doing rather than what it thought it was doing mm-hmm. is I think a pretty valuable a- approach and one that your research fits perfectly into. I think I, that's certainly what I'm, what I'm trying to do and what I hope I, I am doing um, because you're, you're absolutely right to point to this question of documentation. There is some documentation that survived or that was written, um, but a lot of it doesn't really tell us what was happening on the ground. Uh, and so this is certainly something we're, you know, in a race against time, in a sense, because we are talking 40 years later. Yeah. But being able to go back to people and learn about their lived experiences, both survivors and those who participated in this violence, really taking into account their their experiences and their perceptions of what was going on, I think, does give us some some way to go back and reconstruct what was going on on the ground, even if we don't have those written archival records. And, 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 and you know, the historian in me is like the lights are pinging, like, well, that's, it is so important because the there were so few survivors of direct violence. Um, I mean, I... I mean, how many survive S21? It's like... I think it's seven. Yeah, right. Like, so, like... I could be wrong, it's like, I think it's seven. As, as where you have, you have um, most of the people who were um, in, in, in the rest of Cambodia, they do survive, but they're mass victims of, 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 of indirect violence, but you, there's a chance at, at trying to understand uh, through the survivors, the, the deceased in in that context, and so it, it makes in, in, in I guess the, the import and the uh, of, of this of this work seems important. So so we're we're talking about the indirect uh, violence. Um, as you point out, there's some pretty interesting contrasts. Again, there's not sort of one. Uh, one commune, one kind of experience by any stretch of the imagination in in Cambodia. Give us a sense of sort of scale what of of the, the range of experiences that uh, some of the villages and populations mm-hmm. might have experienced uh, under under the DK. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the the range of daily life of daily experience varied pretty dramatically, even. You know, even within a small distance, um, communities that were, you know, maybe a half hour drive from each other, in one, um, you would have very few changes to daily life. 
you might work. So this is the best case. Yes, the best case scenario. Yeah. Uh, you would have very few changes in daily life. You would be able to live in your home with your family. Uh, you would have communal meals typically, but you would be able to bring them home if a family member was unwell. You would be able to have a garden or fish. Mm. Um, you would have collective work groups, so you would still have work assignments and sort of a new organizational structure in your community. But for the most part, aside from some noticeable absences of um, religious festivals and religious actors, for the most part, daily life went on in a pretty similar manner. And, and, and especially these are existing rural communities where we are continue doing rural rural work, maybe yeah. maybe organized differently in the, the work gangs, but... but uh, mm-hmm. You're at your house, you're growing your garden, you're meeting together. Yeah, yeah, so you're still basically growing rice and some supplemental crops with your family. Um, the main difference being where you ate your meals and potentially what you ate in those meals. Um, not necessarily far away, but uh, in other communities, in contrast, would be you know the worst case scenario where family members are separated out into work groups of men, women, and children those work groups become your living groups. So you sleep out at your work sites with, you know, the 10 people in your work group. Um, You're not able to go home. You're not able to see your families. Um, And in those, in those living groups, the state then really controls all of the aspects of your life. So that, you know, I think the most extreme uh, part of this would be uh, forced marriages. So the state, um, state agents would coerce civilian men and women into marriages. So up and down the social spectrum, they're controlling. Yeah. So, you know, they're controlling. So marriages, child care, elder care, all of those really fundamental components Mm -hmm. of traditional life. Um, And so really taking ownership of the family and, and actually putting itself, so the state or the regime, as the head of family, the head of the community, as opposed to the traditional nuclear family. Uh, and so in those communities, um, you know, everything was, was really controlled by the state, and that was um, rations, uniforms, uh, private goods were all confiscated, you couldn't live in your home, all uh, those kinds of measures. So before we, before we talk about some of your um, interesting field work, maybe give us, a, uh, give us an idea of how um, existing approaches have understood um, mass violence, maybe some of the stuff on uh, collectivization or um, or in leading into kind of natural disaster in terms of indirect in, in victims. Yeah. Um, so I am trying to build on a lot of the existing approaches. And in the last decade-ish, um, there's been a, a huge surge in work on wartime governance, um, which has, has given us a lot of really good insights into how um, insurgent, formerly insurgent, uh, regimes govern, um, and so the kinds of priorities that they might have, and those in particular highlight uh, economic interests and ideological interests. Um, and there's also a lot of really fantastic work that's been done on mass violence, uh, on genocide, or on mass atrocities specifically, um, actually breaking down how these can be tools that regimes or states use strategically in order to forward their own interests. Like these are these are places that had the wrong incentive structure. Um, that they, they 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 were they had they had very rational ends yeah. to, of uh, to, to 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 meet, but mm-hmm. um, uh, didn't take the best path there. At least uh, yeah. the incentives were in you know they create famine mm-hmm. and you lose your population. Yeah. So these were these were places where 
the incentives or sort of the goals were not ones that we would typically think of uh, as, as a good idea. Um, but the ways that they went about... Right, just, just to be clear, we're not advocating that any of these things are a good idea. Yeah. Don't do this. <laughs> um, but yeah, so these, these were strategic tools that were used to carry out um, sort of a specific agenda. Um, and, you know, looking at work on collectivization or on the famines of collectivization more specifically, um, a lot of it is structural. Um, a lot of them mm-hmm. point to sort of the bureaucratic incentives. So if you're a low-level bureaucrat, you want to be the best low-level bureaucrat you can be, you're going to take as much grain as possible because that's how you're going to get promoted and you're going to provide for your family. However, that also means you're taking grain away from um, farmers who are producing it and therefore don't have enough food and are more likely to die from starvation. The flip side of that um, is also incentives to under-report. So you're not... So by the same kinds of incentive structures, you're not reporting how much there is, you're not reporting the work, you have a collective action problem that can grow out of this communal structure. Um, A lot of really groundbreaking work that was done on the Great Famine in China uh, during the Great Leap Forward um, suggests that the the communal structure itself lowered incentives to, to work and created a collective action problem surrounding production. Um, more recently, some work on the Soviet Union and on some of the Soviet famines has suggested there was political targeting and political manipulation of mm-hmm. food aid. Um, so people who were opposing the regime were more likely to be targeted with very, very high um, quotas, uh, as well as given less food aid in the time of, shor- of shortages. Right. So creating a, this, this, this dire yeah. situation that you might translate into... Yeah. To, to deaths, um, an interesting point you had was the the some of the literature from from natural disaster mm-hmm. and survival survivability of of natural disaster. Uh, maybe can you tell us what was the sure. role of social isolation in in one's success or failure to to survive a natural disaster? Yeah. Um, so part of part of my approach and what I believe is novel about my approach is actually taking what we know from the violence literature and what we know from the work on collectivization is turning it on its head. So given what we know about who is likely to be targeted or the ways in which these bureaucratic structures are likely to work, how then do people best survive? Um, And so the work on natural disasters um, gives us some insight into the effects of social, social isolation. And so being isolated or having fewer social ties makes it much more difficult for you to survive because you don't have those connections or those networks to lean on. Um, and in the cases of um, these sort of man-made famines and man-made disasters that come out of conflict and violence, that means that people are, you don't have those ties or those people who are willing to undertake really serious risks to help you and to help uh, the rest of your network survive. So... Um is it too of a too much of a blunt in- instrument for me to say that like if you if you imagine um, some of the indirect uh, uh, assault on the like in the same way that an earthquake or a mm-hmm. or hurricane might hit you could and if you're trying to understand the preconditions that help uh, or hinder a population to yeah. survive such a such a sort of a devastating um, uh, event um, that that's a that can be a useful tool that we might not that that didn't normally occur to me until you said that like mm-hmm. yeah that's a good point like yeah I think the social dimensions are are often sort of taking a back seat to either what people are looking at as like the economic conditions or even 
um, you know, the, the violence that's taking place sort of more in the forefront. Um, and not to, not to, not to brag, but some of our, um, some of our great, uh, graduates of our Philippine youth leadership program that we're now, I think like 420 alums from Mindanao, mm-hmm. uh, who, who did, uh, civic engagement projects, uh, when, when the violence hit, hit yeah. Marawi, uh, they sprung into action oh. and and had this the the I think the 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 consequences were were mitigated severely by their ability to to know what to do and to operate uh, social networks and to to, mm-hmm. to to provide aid and assistance and to, to and so those those same uh, um, those same networks that may have uh, benefited uh, you know a typhoon mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> survival can help in a in a, in, a, in, a, in a war situation. You're keeping people alive, and you know how to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's amazing that you have so many students that were participating and able to do that. That's incredible. Yeah, we'll have a whole bunch of here more. You should come, come down from Madison. We'll have uh, uh, 30 students from Mindanao here for a month uh, coming up in a few weeks. So really uh, stay tuned. Yeah, you'll, you'll hear a podcast. Awesome. Democratic Kampuchea, uh, it it fragments social life. Um, maybe give us a. You, you talked about some of the forced marriage, other things. Are there are there any other um, as we go in and try to understand? So the the economic piece of it, it seems seems pretty clear. Like you know, you're you're not growing your own food anymore. You're 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 growing for the state, and you're you're doing it and making dams and doing the things that mm-hmm. that that. Uh, um, uh, you know, brother number one wants you to do, but uh, the the are there other other parts we should know about the social aspect because that that really defines some of I guess where you where you see the success or failure in your in your villa in your mm-hmm. communes. Yeah, I mean, so in in my approach, the the social components really are the the I don't want to say make it or break it point. That sounds really cheesy. <laughs> But but they where, but they seem to be in yeah, places yeah. where you have similar yes. economic structures. The difference in the social. Um, yeah, I think in my in my theory and in the theory that I'm putting forward through through this project, um, what I find is that the economic conditions do really set the stage. They they make it possible that there are going to be shortages, but it is these social components that tip the balance. Um, and so what I what I mean by social components, or what I call social collectivization, which is a new concept that I'm putting forward. Um, I look at these in two ways. I look at the family level and the commune level. And so at the family level, I look at, first, the separation of family units. So did families live together? Um, And if they did not, were they able to visit? And the second is forced marriages. So um, were families or individuals involved in choosing to get married and to whom? Um, Or was the state making those decisions? So was a state deciding for both the man and the woman, um, to whom they would be married, when, and then enforcing those marriages. Um, So those are the the core components on the family side. On the communal side, I look at the introduction of non-local populations. So during the DK Mm -hmm. period, you had forced evacuation of all of the cities. So were there urban evacuees introduced into the population, and were there non-local officials? So 
even you know the village or cooperative or commune level, were your officials from that area or were they from outside? Um, so those are the, the core components for me. Did uh, yeah, so they can they can make people um, behave or take control of social mechanisms and structures, um, uh, as you pointed out, um, uh, and a regime of fear and mistrust. Those can then prevent um, um, those those networks from being regrown. Or how did they, how does that certainly plays a role in in the the ability to enforce one's control over social mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so one of the most common questions that I got the first first few times that I presented this research was, well, if you have these new marriages, aren't those creating new families and new social ties? Yeah. Um, and so my my response to that is really that, you know, you have this environment of fear and mistrust. You have uh, spies are a pretty frequent occurrence. Um, the political environment is becoming much more violent and much, much more mistrustful in general. So even if you, you might not have, even know the person you married. Yeah, that I had some informants who said after the weddings <laughs> they didn't know to whom they had just been married and they were running around yeah. trying to trying to find them. Um, but yeah, so people became much more mistrustful in that environment. So while you might have been physically proximate to yeah. your work group or your new spouse, you weren't necessarily going to trust them or going to undertake risks for them. So the, the 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 new networks that might have sprung up were disrupted in the in this pervasive kind of climate of fear. Um, to to give us some sense of comparison, um, the the indirect deaths of famine and starvation, etc. How do they compare with uh, sort of Soviet collectivization or you know kind of Mao style great mm-hmm. leaps forward? Um, um, what, what are we what are we looking at here? Yeah. In the Cambodia case. Um, so in the Cambodia case, I I think it makes sense to look at percentages of the population and not necessarily at raw mm-hmm. numbers. Again, I don't want to get into a game of which atrocity was worse because they are yeah. all pretty terrible. Um, but in terms of percentage of the population, you have about double um, the percentage of people in, in Cambodia who died from indirect means like starvation or exhaustion than you did in the Soviet or Chinese cases. Wow. Yeah, I mean, percentages... And, 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 and the percentages are yeah. staggering in, 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 in those all, cases. In all, in the in numbers, all, but then to, 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 to double in yeah. Cambodia. So I think Cambodia doesn't necessarily have the same numbers. It's, you know, it was a population of 7 million. So if you have a million, 1.8 million total deaths of 7 million, that's a really large portion of the population. Yeah. You're not talking about China where you had, you know, 50 million or 30 million in the Soviet Union, but you you're getting a large portion of the country. Yeah, right. Um, maybe it's maybe it's good to for our for our listeners mm-hmm. to give us a give us a sense of um, maybe a, a brief history of the of the Khmer Rouge. We don't have to we don't have to delve into detail um, uh, too much, but uh, uh, I guess drop us into a time mm-hmm. and a place. Sure. Um, there's always a risk that I'm going to start too far back and give too much detail on this one. Um, but we, if we start maybe thinking around 1970, um, 1970, there's a coup in Cambodia. Um, the U.S.-backed General Juan Nol takes power. That ushers in sort of the first civil war. So you have a five-year period of civil war between um, General Juan Nol and sort of his Republican forces. And then you also have the communists that were to become the Khmer Rouge, so you have a five-year civil war. 
Um, and the Khmer Rouge win that war. It's the very, very condensed version of that story. Uh, and so they take Phnom Penh on April 17th, 1975, um, and the Khmer Rouge become the dominant faction. It was... Uh, not necessarily a guarantee until that point. Of the, of the Communist Party in, yeah. in, in Cambodia. Yes. Um, at which point they evacuate the cities. Um, so their vision for the country was this a pure agrarian utopia. So they wanted to remove everyone from the cities and move them out to the countryside. And in doing so, they targeted um, populations who they, who they saw as foreign. Um, so if you've been educated abroad, if you worked abroad, as well as those involved with the former regime, so if you worked for the former regime, even if you were, you know, the you know worked for the post office or sort of were a low level bureaucrat or civil servant, um, you were targeted as well as ethnic minorities. So they moved everyone out to the countryside and established um, cooperatives that were meant to be these sites of large scale agricultural production. Um, so instead of the village, people were working in these large cooperative environments. Uh, and that's where you had the division into groups of men, women, and children, either in work groups or in working and living groups. Um, and you had what ended up being a large-scale uh, social engineering pro- project. So the so the and it's these it's these this large group of the rest of Cambodia that the, of the who were subject to the indirect violence that we're mm-hmm. um, looking at. And uh, I guess which leads me to my next question is. Um, Unlike the direct victims, there are survivors. Um, so tell us about how you did your your research. Uh, how did you how did you go about um, finding out these stories? Sure. Yeah, I I spent about a year um, going across Cambodia and trying to learn about people's daily lives and trying to understand these stories. Um, and so I had districts that I had selected based on historical record. Um, and I went out to a couple of communes in each of those districts. Um, so commune, not a term about communism, just the sub-district or municipality. Uh, and so I went to those municipalities or those communes, and I spoke to the relevant leaders, the commune chief, uh, explained who I was, what I was doing there. So if I got their permission, I would then be able to conduct interviews in that area. Um, and typically, um, they would suggest one or two people who would be a good um, a good okay. starting point. Yeah. And I, I used what's called snowball sampling, so using that one person to get suggestions mm-hmm. um, of who else I was going to go talk to so that I tried to get a representative group. Um, you know, this is something that happened 40 years ago, so people who were probably 55-ish, give or yeah. take, and up. Um, and I tried to get a good balance of men and women where possible, and if they were willing to self-identify or if their neighbors or peers identified them, um, tried to talk to former officials as well as survivors. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, we're and you, and you did a fair number. How how many interviews did you do? Um, I did about ninety, um, and so most were one on one. A couple, a couple of these interviews, though, you know, would be uh, yeah. couples or one. I think was a group interview because they felt more comfortable talking all together. Sure. So I talked to over a hundred people. So you're, you're talking, you're talking to a hundred people, trying to and asking them about their their sort of rhythms of everyday life mm-hmm. in their uh, in in their location. Yes. And so, what did you what did you find in terms of the relationship between uh, these key determinants of sort of how how high or low the economic uh, collectivization mm-hmm. was versus how high or low the social 
collectivization. So what was the relationship and, the, and then the outcomes yeah. of uh, depending on their circumstance? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I was, I was really shocked to hear the level of variation um, in uh-huh. daily experiences that people had. Um, and even beyond that, I, perhaps naively, uh, assumed that... So, so, you, so you, had, cho- you chose the provinces based on the, the, the sort of death rates? Uh, for, or I, I actually chose them based on ideological alignment. Okay. So if they were areas that I had historical evidence that they were early aligned with the Khmer Rouge or not. Got you. And I, I thought those that were early joiners or more ideologically okay. aligned would be better treated. I also thought that areas that had high economic control uh-huh. um, would be the ones with the highest rates of famine death. That's not what I found, which to me was pretty shocking. Um, and what I found instead was that, yes, the economic conditions were absolutely important to you know, making famine possible, but it was social control um, and the controls of over social life and the amount that social life was fragmented that really tipped the balance and that made it more likely people would die from starvation. So, so, uh, you, you laid out, you laid out a, a scenario of kind of, you know, that where, um, you know, a two by two of, of, uh, economic and social collectivization of height. So give us a, give us a kind of a snapshot of, sure. um, how those, how those fared, um, depending on the, how extreme, mm-hmm. uh, social or economic collectivization was. Yeah, so in, in the talk, I go through two different communes, which probably in the interest of time I shouldn't do now, um, but they both had the same level of economic control. So they were both places where consumption and production of all goods was under very strict control from the state. Everything was owned in common, very, very high work demands, and very strict punishments for not meeting those goals. Um, but where they varied was on the type or the amount of social control that they had. And so in the first commune that I talked about, had a moderate to low level of social control. Um, you did have some families that were separated, but they were able to visit, and you also had some forced marriages, but some where at least one party was able to request a marriage. You had a couple, you had a small number of non-local um, populations. So you had some urban evacuees, but again, not many that were introduced into the community. Um, but importantly, people were able to live in their own homes. So for those that were not separated, they lived at home with their families. Would, would you say that's the, is that the biggest, if you had to pick one? Um, I mean, that was my guess. As, yeah. as you were talking, I thought, like, if there was one thing, yeah. like, did that mean more, more than, I, I, I think that was the, the big one, if people were able to live at home with their families with their or families. see yeah. their families. Yeah. Um, but the other big one was officials, and that's the biggest difference, I think, between uh, the two cases in, in the top. So, so what do you mean? Um, the officials in this commune were not foreigner, like were not from outside of the village. Um, they were from there, and that was what some of my informants kept pointing to. They said, you know, our officials are from here, so our yeah. leaders had interests in not being so terrible, basically. Um, and, you know, taking a step back from, from my perspective, what that suggests is that they had incentives because they wanted to stay, since this is their home, they wanted to stay after right. this period. So if they treated the population really poorly, it was much more likely they were going to be killed afterwards. So they were kind of self-preservationist, um, but having those, those local officials, I think, was also important. And, and, and in, the, in the absence of that, uh, what did it look like? Yeah, so in the other commune that I compared it with, um, you know, similar economic situation, 
and I should say both both communes have very similar background conditions. So similar populations, similar ideological alignment. Um, economic conditions were very similar. However, families were completely separated. They moved out into their work groups at their work sites. All marriages were forced. Um, and there was no family visitation, so you actually didn't have that opportunity you know, to see your family, to take a break, to go home for a festival. Um, in addition to that, there were um, non-local officials that were brought in. Um, so officials from the Southwest, um, from Takao province were brought in. Um, and they, you know, they didn't have the same kinds of time horizons or incentive structures. They were much more interested in, these are the dictates of the central party, this is what we're going to do. Um, and what I find is that in that community, the one that had um, fewer social ties, so families were separated, non-local officials were brought in, um, you did have much higher rates of these indirect deaths. Because you have such good data from doing doing interviews and quanti quantitative, qualitative, um, maybe are there, are there, do you want to share a few anecdotes that were particularly sort of instructive or powerful or, or you found useful in, uh, in kind of the, that kind of typified mm -hmm. the kinds of things you're talking about? Sure. Um, I think, you know, the, the anecdotes, the, the stories that I have are largely from those communities that maintain social ties. Uh -huh. um, one of the things that I think we as social scientists often struggle with is it's really hard to have a way to typify an absence of something. Um, so in cases, in communities where social ties were maintained, I would have people say things to me like, you know, even though we were in work groups, my mom knew when me and my sister were coming back to town, you know, back to the uh -huh. area and would hide potatoes or would hide other foods in areas that she knew we would go to or that we knew about. Um, so that was, you know, one woman explaining how she and her sister were able to survive, even though they were in pretty bleak economic conditions. So that points directly to you have this existing social network that, that is that is not as, as severely disturbed, and so you can you can get supplies exactly. and and necessities, food to, to those who need it. Exactly. So you had you had these existing ties and you, you could have those kind of unspoken arrangements of, you know, things will be hidden in, you know, the usual family place. Mm -hmm. um, in other places um, in one of the communes that I, I talked about in, in the presentation, uh, one woman explained that she stood up to her commune leader, and she asked him specifically to let her parents and later her nephews uh, stay at home with her so that she could take care of them because they were older, and she didn't want them to be sent off to a work site that was known for being particularly uh, brutal. Uh, and she, you know, she undertook huge personal risks in doing so, but he allowed them, and he allowed her to keep the family together and to take care of them, and they all ended up surviving that period together. Um, the flip side, though, in a lot of the communities where you had these high rates of fragmentation, I would ask someone, you know, do you remember a time when you saw your family or, you know, something you did for your for your family or for your community, and they just, you know, would would start talking about, you know, the sense of loss and, you know, that oh. they didn't see their families during that time period. They said, you know. They, they sometimes got news, but often what it meant was that they had no information. They, they assumed that their family members had died because they had no way of, of seeing them or understanding what they were going through. Uh, yeah, that's heartbreaking. And, uh, yeah. and I mean, uh, that's, uh, that's interesting to say that, yeah, they, they instead of describing 
the the sort of daily social life, it's describing this loss and this absence and this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think you know, for for me as a, as a researcher, it was striking to to hear them talking about this this absence, um, and you know that can be hard to categorize because we're taught to look for evidence, not necessarily this lack of evidence. Yeah, and you really take for granted that the the most normal parts of yeah. of of the human experience are that the kind of the 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 social things we take for granted just that happen um and when those are all taken away from you like what yeah what you know what what comes of that did the a question i had was so in the in the areas where um the collect economic collectivization was high, and uh, the and the leaders there was lots of turnover, lots of uh, kind of external leadership um, brought in. Was there was there a um, do you know how when the sort of regime starts eating itself more intensely and sort of purging and uh, its own its own ranks did is is someone who had been sort of uh, you know. A local boy who's you know running the commune um, versus uh, somebody a carpetbagger who comes in to 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 run uh, a place. Do they survive, or does one is one circumstance better for survivability of these of the of the of the leadership, or does it is it too random to know? Um, I mean that's that's a tough question. I think in in some places where. It had been um, local official. I don't even know if the division would be local or non-local, or if the division would be um, how well they treated people. Um, okay. So you know what I heard in a lot of places was you know when I would ask you know I would love to speak to officials if if anyone um, is still alive or might be willing to talk to me. A lot of the time, what I heard was they ran away when Vietnam came in. Um, so they ran towards either um, Anlong Vang or to Bailin, which were the two Khmer Rouge strongholds mm-hmm. towards the end, um, or, you know, into the into the 90s. Um, or I heard, oh, they were killed in the 80s during a period of high revenge killings. Less often what I heard was, oh, yes, this person is still alive, but they're still, like, you know, we didn't kill him because he treated everyone well. Um, and I know in, in one community I was interviewing a woman who later revealed that her husband had been the sort of local administrator during that time. So when I asked if, um, you know, if I could speak to any local officials, said, oh, you know, they, they love him and he treated them very well, which is the only reason either of us are still alive. Um, so people were pretty upfront with the dynamics about revenge killings that took place in the 80s, but you also had a civil war from 1979 all the way through to 96, 98, depending on the source, or depending on who you ask, um, I would say 98, but, um, so you, you had this ongoing context of violence afterwards, so it's a lot less yeah. neat. And, and the, you know, the, um, I mean, not to like sort of evoke sympathy for, uh, the DK official, but it, it's, it's a, it's a damned if you do, if you're, if you're, if you're mean, if you, um, and maybe, that might, and maybe that translates into getting results, um, being feared and being, yeah. you know, for the, uh, then their regime is is perhaps less likely to uh, come and take you. Mm-hmm. Um, however, if if uh, when the Vietnamese arrive, 
or when, <laughs> when right when when then then yeah. your 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 likelihood of survival is probably very low. Yeah. Um, um, so that was something that you know came up with those officials or former sort of administrators that I was able to talk to, uh, even people who had been combatants and participated in violence more explicitly. A lot of them did say that they said, you know, I tried to do as best as I could by my people, but I also had to comply so that I was not taken or so that my family was not taken. So right. as if as if you were you were too kind or lenient, yeah. Then if you were then too lenient, you could be replaced. You're you're gonna be you're gonna be replaced. Yeah. Uh, in the the second commune that I talked about, that was exactly what had happened. They had had local officials during the DK period, and then after about a year and a half. Um, they were replaced because they had been too lenient. And people, that was a, a common refrain that I heard from people, that those who were too nice or too lenient were taken and killed. Oh, that's intense. Yeah, so you're, you're really, st- you know, damned if you do and damned if you don't. Well, um, Rachel, this sounds like really interesting work where we're, uh, you're uh, in, the, in the home stretch of a, of, of, of a dissertation. Are we, are, yes. we, are we thinking about uh, a book, articles? What's the, what's the, what's the out product of this, you think? Um, so the goal, uh, and this is a lofty one, so please don't hold me to it just yet, um, is to turn the dissertation into a book. Um, We've got a podcast. It's the most important yes. first step. In- it's the podcast, <laughs> step one. <laughs> Dissertation defense stuff too, okay. <laughs> um, and yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to turn this into a book. Um, something that's a bit of a longer process, but that's the goal. Well, the the um, the cultural narrative historian in me says like um, we hope some of these great stories uh, uh, are woven through it because because you've got to, you've got a, a, um, a really interesting slice of, of again this kind of mixed interdisciplinary research that uh, can can. Tell us a lot about um, this really important yet, you know, um, still understudied uh, part of uh, Southeast Asian history. So thanks for coming in, and we'll look to we'll we'll have you back for the book. Thank you so much. Yeah, this was my first podcast, so I will <laughs> I'll have a better grasp of audio by then. <laughs> okay, we'll see you later. Thank you. Bye. Crossroad would like to thank Indonesia group Duo Kribos Music, Aku Harus Jadi Superstar, and Chiyu for production assistance.